Hey everyone, welcome to the Laity Podcast. We're happy to have you, and this is Andrew coming to you from my non-fancy microphone. I was about to post this episode and wanted to give a really quick intro. As part of our Open and Relational Theology mini-series, we're really excited to have Trip Fuller. We want to share with you a conversation we have with Trip. I think about three, four weeks ago now, um, and Trip is fantastic. He hosts the Homebrewed Christianity Podcast, which many of you will know and be familiar with. Um, wanted to just let you know this is a bit more of a longer conversation, more sort of open forum than we typically have, but uh, that's Trip style and uh, wanted to just roll with it. We enjoyed it a ton. You'll find him super smart, insightful, witty, certainly hilarious. Um, but if you want to get right into kind of the, the dirty details of, of open and relational theology, more specifically process theology, you can actually just skip ahead to about the 23-minute mark or so. Um, between now and then, Tripp gives a great introduction kind of to himself and his sort of coming and growing into faith, and uh, as well as, you know, goes on a bit of a uh, kind of an elongated explanation around his favorite podcast, which is honestly hilarious and fun. Um, so feel free to stick around for the whole conversation. Otherwise, go ahead and skip down a you know twenty three minutes or so to get right into the core content. Otherwise, thanks for listening. Uh, also, should note trips a little bit more PG thirteen uh, than some of our other guests, so just prepare yourself. But all good. We really appreciate you being on trip, and uh, hope you guys enjoy as much as we did. friends welcome to the laity podcast and uh, we're really excited to have you with us uh, we have trip fuller in the metaphorical house joining us from raleigh and of course steven's here also but trip how's it going man great to have you oh i'm i'm pumped to be here and uh i really feel like your metaphorical house is a warm and inviting one and uh you know the the lady <laughs> should should just tell you uh, thank you right now maybe by dropping a five star iTunes review that's what i'm thinking ooh oh there I you go i love that you that's must, subtle. you must be a pod, you must be a podcast host because you know yeah you know all the all the ins and outs of how this works for those who don't know trip um first of all you you should repent and change your ways second of all um trip is the host of probably the most OG christian podcast on the internet uh, homebrewed Christianity. He's an author. He's an academic. He's a he, he's just a, he's a filmmaker, which we'll get into, and probably ten more things. I think the most like multivocational Christian guy. Are you still actively I, in that, ministry like, on the internet? Um, well, kind of. I mean, I I basically preach at churches half the month, um, traveling and speaking, and then I am uh, probably like gotta be the coolest layperson to have at your church ever because uh, I'm so not used to not working in a church that I basically will do a part-time job for free, you know? <laughs> right. I love so that. the youth minister's like, you were a youth minister for 15 years. You want to run the summer retreat? I'm like, you mean I get to? They're like, yeah. And then they're like, do you want to fill in substituting for Sunday school? I'm like, if I'm not traveling, just tell me. And, you know, so... 
Um, but you, currently, I'm like just a normal person in the pews who gets who's like the most you know compliant pitch hitter they've ever seen. Man, you're like the dream volunteer. That's awesome. Yeah, and, you and I even went to a board meeting and advocated a position I didn't agree with because all three of our ministers agreed with it and know that I trusted their intuitions better than mine. I told them, I said, look, if this is what y'all think is best for the church, y'all pray for these people, care for them and stuff. I will go be obnoxious on your behalf. And they were like, really? And I was like, yep. <laughs> um, I think y'all are wrong. But like, why would you trust my judgment? There you go. Trip, how do you introduce yourself? For those who literally don't know you from Adam, how, how do you introduce yourself? Like in, in well, a I was, Look, y'all are Stephen and Andrew, not Adam. Let's just, we don't need to forget our names here. Um, well, I, I'm a Baptist church planters kid who was a musical theater and philosophy major in undergrad before realizing neither degree would have a job. And then uh, I I was in rock bands until I had to pay for my own health insurance. My wife and I met when we started dating at 18. So um, that meant, oh, wow. yeah, I know. That meant we had a very biblical relationship. Uh, I've been able to hold it over the head of all my other evangelical friends and say, like, I literally didn't drink, smoke, or have sex till I got married. I've caught up, though. And, um, <laughs> and then I, I've been a nerd since middle school. In middle school... I asked my parents, who are Baptist church planners, uh, big questions. And um, because the free church tradition, which I know Church of Christ is part of the free church tradition, um, uh, the individual's uh, own quest and search and wrestling and coming to faith is so important, they would give me books and be like, well, read this, and then we'll talk about it. We don't want to just give you the answer. So from middle school on, I started reading theology, read like, C.S. Lewis, and then Bonhoeffer, and then Tillich, and Kierkegaard in middle school and high school. Middle that, school and high school, Kierkegaard and Tillich? Yeah. Um, That's impressive. Well, uh, now this doesn't help your social life or your ability to date in high school. But <laughs> I, uh, I know I had a, had a high IQ and the propensity to read things that ponder death. So, um, <laughs> the... the the I, I like a becoming a scholar is like the the uh uh was more connected to my personal piety. So wrestling and questioning and thinking through things has been one of the aspects of my relationship with God. Oh, since uh, um about twenty years old until three years ago, I've been a minister the whole time. Um, I'm thirty six now. Have three kids: eleven, five, and about to be two. Um and for me, there's a uh, um, uh, the ministry part and the academic part have been intertwined because for I've I'm I've have a very intense spiritual relationship with God, but a very strong love hate relationship with institutions. So thinking through my faith intellectually, experientially, contemplatively is intimately shaped how I practice as wow. a minister, how I parent and uh, engage as a citizen and stuff. So um, the podcast, uh, Homebrewed Christianity, I started 11 years ago in March this year. And um, it, it like, I mean, some people are like, oh, it's a beer themed. But um, yeah, I am a competitive homebrewer, a very committed Lakers and Dodgers fan. 
Um, I love comic books, and Star Wars is my favorite of all the sci-fi fantasy things, followed by Lord of the Rings. Um, but the for me, um, the the homebrewing metaphor was important because I think in the academy and in the history of the church, there's this huge diversity of creative and faithful and critical reflection about uh, truth and goodness and wisdom and beauty and creativity. And so often people's experience with Christianity in the church is defined by some narrow, flat, tasteless expression that they were given. And they leave church, sometimes hurt, sometimes wounded, sometimes because they have questions they their congregations won't acknowledge, or they have pains because their congregation was too, uh, they haven't grown enough to embrace whoever that person is or whatever. And homebrewed Christianity is... My goal is to interview the biggest diversity of nerds the church has and people outside the church so that the individual that listens can wrestle with those big ideas without having to read books and then brew their own faith. Like, no longer is it okay just to read the Bible and pray. Now you have to wrestle with the fact we live in a world with multiple religious traditions, and they actually are good people. Um, we're we're in a situation where you understand that so many of the important things about you were determined because you were a sperm that won a race against millions of other sperm and were born into one place in one family in one church at one time in one historical situation that if you were born some other time, all these features that are so important to you would be different. We know that for a long time, we're like Jesus is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. And now we say that about a homeless first century Jew on a mediocre planet in a mediocre galaxy among millions of galaxies in the universe. Like the situation for faith has changed so much that we need to cultivate a humility, but also a wonder that provokes us to faith in new and different ways. And because of that, I knew I would never have the right answers, but I could introduce more and more people to more ingredients. And then we can have a multiplicity, a better, a, a more rich ecosystem of people that know and encounter the living God through Christ. And so homebrewed Christianity <laughs> was like, let's have more home breweries. And it's really geared towards laity, right? Like a third of the people that listen to my podcast are professional ministers and academic. The other two thirds are like nerds that are electricians. And uh, when I do these events and stuff because of the podcast, I find out that the laity are packed full of people that take take it more seriously, think through it more rigorously, um, and they just have never been given the task, responsibility, and the resources. So that's been my thing, whether in a church or online or whatever, but to to look at the church and go, the questions we face are big enough, we have to take them seriously, and that shouldn't intimidate us. And honestly, most of us grew up with the equivalent of like Pap's Blue Ribbon Christianity. You know, like... <laughs> It technically like the won. old classic, you mean? <laughs> I mean, it technically won a blue ribbon. It was just hundreds of years ago, probably at a time only straight, white, upper class, middle class, white, Republican, libertarians were allowed to talk about God. That's probably when somehow it, won. it was before the I mean, refrigerator, though. That's what I can't figure out. Like, how'd you get it cold enough to taste yeah, I mean, it? <laughs> well, that that is true. My theory about PBR is I was about to grab one. By the way, I'm dead serious. <laughs> oh, that's depressing. That's depressing. I mean, or, I mean, do do you also need me to plug your Patreon account? Because <laughs> exactly, this is the lady, man. It's it's the twelve pack for nine ninety nine. Uh, I mean, you cannot go yeah, wrong. Twelve of those 
is equal to the alcohol volume of like four high quality craft beverages. That's that's true. And they don't like pillage your taste buds. <laughs> that's both true. Fair points. But see, I feel like a lot of people out there feel like Christianity is um like getting drunk on PBR. Like the only way it works is to go into a, a very patriarchal, hierarchical institution with Greek letters on the front. Like you know, fraternity <laughs> and or most Protestant Christianity. And then you have to consume such large volumes because of its weakness. And maybe in a suspended state, like over a keg or full of the spirit or whatever. That's like how it has to work. Like you have to like pack it full in inappropriate patriarchal <laughs> type of situations. But like beer can work with just like, you know, three hours, four beers, good friends talking. And you can get just the right tipsy to be honest, but would not like to make a fool of yourself. And, um, you know, like I, I really feel like you should leave your PBR behind. Like it. Well, there you go. Um, just to pick your brain on two things. One. So obviously the Christian podcast landscape, I'm just so curious how include of, of which, you know, I guess we're, we're a part of here, although trying to be as low production as possible. I mean, what is your sort of take on how that landscape has shifted? Why kind of do you, are you all like, and what do you listen my, to? And what and what do you you know what do you listen to? What are your favorites? Um. All right. So, I'll be honest with you because you said you had low production value and no one listens. <laughs> um. What do I listen to? Well, here's how the Christian podcast landscape has changed. Um. The desires for ex evangelical millennials have reshaped the Christian podcast situation. Now, I know technically I'm a millennial, but I'm not sure I should count because um, sometimes I get a little frustrated with ex-evangelicals. Not like that they're ex-evangelicals. That's reasonable. I think if you like Jesus, you should probably not hate gay people, want the planet not to die, and right. want to help the poor. It's mostly in what happens when somebody, uh, an ex-evangelical, goes become spiritually curious. It's not the most thought through thing of all time. So there are a number of podcasts, many run by people I'm friends with that I find just straight up painful, but I won't name those parts. Um, uh, but I, I would say podcasts to listen to, I'm going to oh, wow. scroll through this list right now. I love, uh, Kevin Smith podcast, Smodcast. That was the first podcast to listen to 13 years ago when I decided to do Homebrew mm. Christianity. Yeah, I like that. Um, nice. I like listening to ones people on the intellectual dark web do so that I know what nerdy topics they're probably so wrong on that if I explain the process version, it'll help them out. Um, I like uh, I like the Intelligent Square debates. Um, I like the, uh, the weeds as recline show, the Michael Brooks show. It's my favorite of the angry socialist young <laughs> millennial shows. Um, I like majority FM for, I like, uh, Pat Flynn for entrepreneur one or the cliff Ravens class show. I like, uh, the science hour science in action space. You made it weird. It's sometimes good. And sometimes it makes me stab my face. Larry Wilmore is awesome. Um, uh, I like uh, Mason in Ireland is the best Lakers show, da hands down. The Sedano show is a follow-up for L.A. Sports Talk Radio. Live Scientific, 
recently, Sean Carroll's Mindscape is Amazeballs, and which is funny because I don't even like Sean Carroll's conclusions. He's a physicist on the multiverse and God and all sorts of stuff, but he's such a good interviewer and gets these fascinating people and he lets them disagree with him without critiquing them. And he's just so good. It makes me like him more. Um, I like Jake Tapper from CNN uh, because like his goal is just to make everyone difficult. I have a small crush on Chris Hayes. Why this is happening (laughs) is really good. AM joy is my favorite of the MSNBC podcast. Um, because she's a liberal black yeah, Methodist who doesn't mind sharing her faith and asking questions she doesn't know the answer to. Um, newsworthy with Norsworthy. I know he's from your oh, tribe, yeah. right? Part of the elect. You know it. Yeah. I I know. I, I He's Church of Christ. I mostly just look at the image of his podcast on mute because his <laughs> hair is so good. <laughs> Um, he'd appreciate that. Oh, I know. I know. I'm sure he listens to you and doesn't tell you. He There's listens no to way. You. There's we, no, we had him on. We had him on. That That's the only one he listened to. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he listens to all the episodes he's on, but in half speed. <laughs> Look at that. Somebody's going to tweet that. And that way he'll listen to this episode. Um, but that way his voice doesn't still sound like a high school boy, you know, <laughs> in half, half speed. speed. Um, I like philosophy bites, the partially examined life philosophy in our times, the, uh, new book series, new books in, and there's like new books in philosophy, critical theory, anthropology, intellectual history, religion, uh, pathological is really cool. Crackers and grape juice, all the Christian hermit, uh, humanist podcasts I listen to. Nate Gilmore. Yeah. Uh, Nate. Oh yeah. From Smyrna. He's, or he's, he's, Smyrna. In, he's in, uh, he's in my neck of the woods, man. Middle of nowhere, oh, Georgia. He was one well, of our he's first come guests. to Theology Beer Camp. He's come to Theology Beer Camp twice. So y'all should make that one of your goals for life. Yeah. No, that's good. I'm not a huge fan of Inglorious Pastards, but Twisted Sisters, I do like. Their female version of their podcast <laughs> is great. Um, it doesn't quite have... Never mind. I'm not going to say mean things. Uh, <laughs> Podcasters Roundtable is the best podcast about podcasting. Because you'll, he, it's hosted <laughs> by all the different people that have podcasts about podcasting. All the Rupert Sheldrake podcasts are great. Pass the mic is the best, like evangelical that were connected to Southern Baptist uh, black church leaders who are thinking about evangelicalism and race and prophetic critiques without like dismissing white evangelicalism, but yet being prophetic and junk. It's it's awesome. That's great. A Jew and a Gentile philosophies this philosophies a uh, philosophy for tw- four or twenty four seven Rebel Force Radio definitely the best Star Wars podcast. Um, the public. I just realized you're going in alphabetical order, and we're only at R. Well, you said what do I listen to? I told you before. Just so everyone knows, I told them before this started that I've listened to like forty two days worth of podcasts in September. So, like, um. The Game of Thrones, and and I've only told you like a third of them. I'm like deciding which ones to tell you. Very Bad Wizards is a psychology and a... (laughs) Very Bad Wizards? it's so good. Like, it's a psychology and and an evolutionary biologist and their friends, and they like debate random academic articles with really funny like pop culture references. And uh, I actually don't agree with either one of them and their, like, actual intellectual commitments. But it's, one, funny. 
and two, they're just smart. So it's great. Um, all right. I'll be more depolarized. I love depolarized. I like Dan Coke stuff. Dan Coke is awesome, man. I love Dan. Yeah. Um, I like all of Robert Wright's podcasts, like Blogging Heads TV, The Wright Show, The Meaning of Life TV. Um, the post-structuralist tent revival is really good. Not just because I was on there, but even before that. Capitalism Hits Home is great. Like, And if you're trying to tell your not-leftist friends about leftist economy and their conservative evangelical, Capitalism Hits Home is good because it's like a socialist who is a family therapist explaining the way capitalism ruins families and how if you were really pro-family, <laughs> you would want a different economic order. It's good. Profane Faith, excellent. Um Let's see. I'm skipping some now. Eco Civ podcast, great. The Battlestar Galacticast, because Battlestar Galactica oh, no. is amazeballs. <laughs> um, uh, Life Compass Living podcast, because that's my dad's. Lando Lakers. All the L's are all Lakers podcasts. Lando Lakers is my number one Lakers podcast. It's not a radio show. The Faraday Institute podcast, great. And uh, let's see. Of all the left, uh, the side view, which is like psychedelic and religion podcasts. Wow. That's like one fourth of the podcasts I subscribe to. But, um, you know, good luck yeah, editing well, that yeah, down. Well, maybe we'll just do what Homebrew does and have an interview, have, a, have an intro forever. Yeah, we can do that. Exactly. Well, it's a spiritual gift. <laughs> all right, man. Well, Trip, this is, uh, man, this has been fun already. It's, um, we can jump in. We've got, uh, we, we brought you on to talk about open and relational theology, which I hear you're somewhat of a fan of. Yeah. And everyone can go to open and relational theology.com and join our reading group. Tom Ward and I are doing Has that started March yet? and April. It's in March. No, and it April. starts at okay. the beginning of March. Cause I, I did that. I like to put my email in there and nothing ever. Like I didn't, I didn't receive. You should have got an email today with an invite to our Facebook group. Okay, cool. Well, I'll go back. I'll go back digging through it. Guys, Unless you've already labeled my emails as junk mail, you know, you're <laughs> like, wow, I've, he's already said he'll do the podcast. Junk, junk, junk. <laughs> he's in. Now he's out. That's it. That's it, it. Dude, it's no joke. That happens all the time. It, the worst is when you know them and then you're Ooh. like, dude, you unsubscribed from the podcast email a while ago. And they're like, no, I didn't. I'm like, no, like literally no one can do that for you. And... <laughs> <laughs> i was like it's not personal but just i'm just saying like when you said you didn't get the email there's a reason yeah right <laughs> all right so hey uh let's jump in here open and relational theology trip you are this is kind of this is where you live i know um when you're when you're talking to your friends like especially like who are either ex-evangelicals or uh I don't know, in, in an evangelical context, but they're questioning things. How do you introduce open and relational frameworks of God and specifically process theology in a way that doesn't freak them out? Well, um, I mean, if you just do surveys of people that leave their faith behind in the United States, the biggest four reasons are the problem of evil, um, science, uh, Trauma caused by the church, either to yourself or to someone near you, and the the judgmental, um, you know, nature of the church. And I think there are open and relational reasons. All like 
that the reason those become issues have to do with so much of American Christianity being more interested in worshiping and celebrating and being comforted by a God whose power is so omnipotent, so strong, so top-down that God can build a cross and put anyone God wants on it, rather than a God whose power is the power of love, who bears crosses. And so mm-hmm. open and relational theology to me, in process thought specifically, is a type of theology that takes God's self-testimony in the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus so seriously that it it actually reworks the classical attributes of God that the church in its earliest generations adopted from Greek philosophy, not from Hebrew scriptures and not from uh, Jesus' own testimony. And so um, I think when you do that, you could imagine a church responding differently to a lot of the biggest reasons people Mm -hmm. are leaving. Now, you know, the, for me, it was the problem of evil and suffering that first raised the issue, but I can think of a lot of reasons, you know, in, you know, in relationship to the other big issues that, that set people off. And if I'm describing open and relational theology to someone who is not, you know, where their relationship with the church isn't contested at the moment and they're happy, then I just assume that most of them, their actual piety that they practice as a Christian assumes a number of things that classical expressions of theology, ones held by Calvin, Luther, and Aquinas, don't hold. Namely, that what you do in response to God's call on your life changes what's going to happen. And that if you respond to God in one way, it changes how God's going to relate to the next moment. And that prayer does something other than just adjust you more uh, pliably to what God's already decided God's going to do. Like the way of most Christians relate to God is that God is living, life-giving, and is so invested in the relationships that what we do in response to God changes how God responds to us the next moment. And because God is the infinite God of love, however we respond, faithfully or the worst most depraved response ever, God still, out of God's loving investment in us, is going to come to us the next moment and call and offer us a new possibility. I think most Christians' vision of God is more similar to that than one that thinks uh, that openness of the future isn't real or that our own agency doesn't contribute to the world in the next moment or that God's own ability to act um isn't uh, closed off from the participation of us. I mean, most of the time as churches, when you rally and get together or you pray or you're wanting to work on a justice issue in the community or whatever, the language we use is let's partner mm-hmm. with God in doing something, right? And and so open and relational theology in one sense is an academic collective from across the different parts of the church who are trying to describe intellectually and faithfully and biblically the God most Christians relate to. And, uh, yeah, that's uh, the shortest answer you'll get all night. (laughs) So did you, um, I've I've heard you talk a little bit about your introduction into the, into process theology. Um, was it, was Hartshorn your, your first, your first introduction into the, into the, uh, the framework? Yeah, Yeah. Um, can you talk a so, little bit about 
Yeah, for process thought it was. Um, I I had a friend tell me when I was speaking somewhere at like a Baptist state convention meeting when I was in college as a BSU leader, um, he said something about uh, something about the uh, I, oh, you sound like Gregory Boyd, which is open theism, and that's not good. Yeah, that was derogatory, you know, and, right? Yeah, yeah, and I I read it and I was like, no, Gregory Boyd's too conservative. Uh, but um, <laughs> he's correct that the the Bible isn't very compliant with Calvinism. But I <laughs> but I grew up a Calvinist, so I already like I understood how to do that so well, and it was being forced to read the whole Bible in Bible classes that made Calvinism stop working. And then it was the experience of the intense suffering of people near to me that called it into question experientially. And so when I was in a philosophy of religion class in undergrad and reading Aquinas and he's explaining omnipotence and I'm just like, this is stupid. Like I, I, and now it, part of it is I was Baptist. So Aquinas is Catholic. So Early in my life, my grandparents probably thought I should witness to Catholics, you know. So, mm-hmm. like, we thought we were supposed to witness to Methodists because th- who knows if they were saved. <laughs> so, uh, like, like you think, well, they're Catholics, so they probably don't read the Bible to know that, like, God regretted making humans and then drowned them in Noah. And then, like, in Jeremiah, God's like, if you do this, I'll do this. If you do this, I'll do that. And, like, the, the idea that God, is the only agent and omnipotent and like everything's either permitted or determined by God. It's just like only someone that hadn't read the Bible would say that. Now, obviously at this point, I don't think that's the best way of reading Aquinas, but with the selections that were in this book, I just lost it in class and told this professor in his very first semester of teaching at our school um, that I didn't think he or Aquinas had read the Bible and I got so upset and I was like, (laughs) omnipotence is stupid. Um, Like I believe in the one that died on the cross, not the one that builds it. And you know, and he's like trip that's process philosophy and it's not compatible with Christianity after I gave this long critique of omnipotence. Well, I just went to the library because that was my work study and started typing in process and when I looked at all the titles, Charles Hartshorn, uh, or Hartshorn, but I'm a redneck, so it's always stayed Hartshorn, um, like, wrote a book called Omnipotence and Other Theological Mistakes. And it's very short. So I just read it that weekend, decided he was right, because why not pick the opinion least popular in your class so you can argue more? Uh, and, 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 like, being forced right. to defend it throughout the semester... And then, uh, you know, on weekends, reading more process philosophy to know what they thought made me more and more interested in process thought. But, like, at the base of it, like, I I think there are two problems at the heart of Christianity that make open relational theologies so necessary. One is um, the babysitter problem, that for a lot of Christianity— the idea of God we have is one, I would not let babysit my child. That their understanding of God's power. Yeah, like, let's say my kid's walking in front of a car. Well, most 
Christian theologians throughout the history of the church think God will either let it happen, determined it happen, or if you're Calvin, throw the kid under the car and um, and not stop them. Like, if you have the power to stop my kid from walking in front of a car, you do it. And the understanding of omnipotence that is natural for Calvin and Aquinas is one where that is a genuine potentiality and God chooses not to exercise it or determine not to exercise it if you're a Calvinist. And that just means like my babysitters are all better humans than God. And I have just no interest in leaving them with my kid. And that's depressing because Jesus isn't even that mean. Like I think as a Christian, God should at least be as nice as Jesus because he's operating as a fully human, fully divine person. Like there's got to be some limitations to humanity if Jesus puts on the awesomeness. <laughs> but for most people's vision of God, God's like an asshole and Jesus is his PR agent, <laughs> not the other way around. It's supposed to be Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the one that testifies in material reality hmm. to the infinite love of God, not Jesus is like the biggest psych move of the cosmos. <laughs> and that when he's pulled back, God's going to come in and just lord over us right. with fire and judgment. And and the other one is the monstrous situation of uh, if God is omnipotent, then we end up being held responsible as sinners for things we don't even actually choose. And that's just... It's one horrible parenting, not that God's parenting, you know, in scripture works out well, because Adam and Eve was a failure. And apparently <laughs> God is not held irresponsible at all to just have peaced out and let kids do whatever they want to do. Like, uh, you know, if, if, if you left your kids at the house and were like, don't touch the arsenic and they came back and they were screwed up, like you would go to jail. CPS would call you and they'd be like, right. why you're in charge of this. You told them where the arsenic was and not to touch it and left. But nonetheless, they didn't even know the knowledge of good and evil yet, but are held responsible for it forever. And that's depressing. If not for the fact that we're <laughs> held responsible for it. <laughs> um, and so there's a certain monstrous situation that covers over the lie of omnipotence at the heart of Christianity, where Christianity for so long has understood the perfection of God to entail a type of divine power that when you look at the human predicament, that you end up saying, um, God created us um, and put and holds us responsible for a situation that couldn't be otherwise. And if we don't respond the way God wants, or God has determined from the foundations of the earth, we have eternal conscious torment to demonstrate God's holiness. And that's just so asinine. If, uh, no, like what about Jesus makes you think that makes sense? Mm. Like literally mm. when Jesus decides to pull out the gnashing of teeth, it's <laughs> always directed to two groups, religious people that are judgmental, hypocrite assholes and Lord over people because of their economic situation are stuck in sinful predicaments that they see. And so judgmental religious asshats are told, watch out for the gadashing. And people with the ability to help people eat and don't do anything. Like those are the two groups. Yeah. Like you're so affluent, you don't even decide to think about helping people. Or you're so religious, you don't know that you're actually harming people 
when you talk about God. Those are the two people Jesus is like, you might get Ganeshed. And yet we create an, an entire church where you have succeeded as a church leader, if you convince a 14-year-old, he might go to hell for touching his penis and enjoying it. And like that's horrible. That's like literally horrible. The, they're like, well, you know, true love waits, but uh, climate change doesn't, and you don't care. So like there, there is this monstrous little problem at the heart of popular Christianity where you – you are being held responsible for something that could be otherwise, namely, according to classical Christianity, by God's own choosing. And that's just ugly. And so if God can't babysit and God's going to hold us responsible for things that we couldn't have done otherwise, I think we should pick another religion. And conveniently, the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible gives plenty of ample material for us to think through one. And I would think I'd call it Christianity. It's just like, uh, so the open and relational thing at the heart of it is really addressing like those type of issues. And, uh, but I'm happy to talk about super nerdy ones, like, you know, panpsychism. And well, stuff, what, what I, and, and feel free to channel the inner nerd as you are, but what I was going to ask is, you know, so what does the alternative begin to look like for those that, you know, just, to, and we talked about this in an intro for those who frankly, like myself, that didn't, grow up with any sort of alternative, if you will, frameworks of th- how to even think about God differently. Um, where does, where does one begin and what, it, what does the alternative begin to look like? Okay. So I want to answer this two ways. Like one, how trip, because we're just talking into microphones over the internet and someone listens would say, but the other is how as a minister, I introduced this, which is the opposite of everything I'm about to say. So, um, if I was just going to answer the question for microphones, I would say that first pay attention to what the kingdom of God is described as doing, who participates in it, in the teachings of Jesus, and the invitation he gives others to participate in it. Who is the one Jesus calls Abba? How does the Abba intimacy Jesus invites us into shape our living? How does it shape how we see power and privilege? How does it give us lenses to understand the presence and co-suffering of God with us in the hardest times? I would start there. The second place I would look is the cross. At the cross, where is God? Well, if you're Christian, if you're a Trinitarian Christian, which, uh, you know, is most of them, um, then, then one place, the Son, is dying with the experience of being abandoned by the one he called Abba. And the father is watching the son die in that experience. Now, if you were a parent, you could imagine which one has the harder experience. And the thing is that Christianity testifies that the very heart of God is a son who died abandoned on a cross unjustly and bears those wounds in his resurrection. It also testifies that the father died watching his son be a victim of an unjust system, religious, political, and social. And it testifies that the spirit of God bound that relationship together such that God as God is in God's self has been definitively shaped 
by that experience. If that's true, it's really odd that when we just define God's power or God's holiness, that then we set God apart from that experience, because it's in that moment, I know that the God who is with us, the incarnate one, knows my pain, knows my suffering, knows my complicity with injustice, and has identified with the victim and insisted that justice for the victim does not mean turning a victim into a violator, but reconciling them together into the life of God. Mm. The predicaments we face as a, as a, as a species— the predicaments we face as life on this planet are not going to be solved by putting a logical, rational, good person in charge of a totalitarian, top-down, powerful system. It's going to come by reconciling and transcending the patterns of violence, exploitation that exist in our society. Jesus faced them in culture, in society, in politics, in religion, and they said no and killed him. And God said, no basket, and raised him from the dead. Hmm. And the resurrection is the promise that the infinite love of the relational God will be present in each defeat, offering new possibilities, resurrections, you could say, and will use each response of fidelity in us to bring greater beauty, greater justice into being. When you start to talk about an open and relational theology, what animates me, what excites me, and what it, like makes me thrilled to invite people into this faith um, is that I am confident that God, ha- there is no ending to God's dream to, dr- to make this world a more beautiful place and to give it the dignity the good God of creation has always desired. And that there is no situation that can't begin to respond to that call. And so when you talk about proclaiming the good news as an open and relational theologian and in relationships, that then what we're saying is that in each moment, in each experience, in each relationship, in, in the minutia of our situation, God calls us to the most loving, beautiful, justice-filled possibility before us. God doesn't call us to something far off that isn't available, but God can give us eyes to see and ears to hear a possibility we wouldn't know was available to us without the empowerment of the Spirit, the grace of God, and the faith that the resurrected one generates. And so, the I mean, there's, you know, obviously I could translate all this into philosophical language. But just as a theologian and as a minister, open and relational theology is an empowering theology because it, one, says our lived experience is the very place that God has come. Right. It says it's a solid a theology of solidarity. It says that in our suffering, in our oppression, in our trauma, in our experiences, in the places we are victim and harmed and shamed— God is identified with us in Christ. And then it's a theology of glory because it says that the goodness and triumph of God is not one that comes without reconciling the places we've been harmed, oppressed, shamed. And it doesn't come without us genuinely receiving that love relationally. It doesn't come by coercion because love is not accomplished without reciprocity. And I, one of the biggest problems, I think, 
in contemporary theology is when they resist open and relational theologies is the idea that um, at some point it gets so bad that God has to pull the mat out from under the world and just intervene and go straight up Caesar style and put the bad people on crosses, the good people in heaven and go, all right, I thought I was going to let y'all figure this out, but bump that y'all suck. Mm. And what I'm saying is um, our hope in God is not that at some point it gets so bad. God sets things to right without us. It's that the infinite God of love is so invested in us that the infinite nature of God's love will triumph over the finite nature of our resistance. Because what God desires is the type of love you have when you hold eye contact and make love. When you both have given yourselves fully to each other and it's a beautiful experience, which is different than the first time you fool around, right? Like, I mean, it's not like hard to get. And that, and the first time you fool around is different than if somebody violates another physically. The same physical acts can take place. Yeah. But one of them includes a subject being vulnerable and giving themselves to the other, and the other mm. being a subject vulnerable and giving themselves to the other. And when Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that sin, law, death becomes subject to the Son, and the Son to the Father so that God is all in all, I believe he's saying that what God has problems with and God is conquering and defeating is sin, law, and death. Not living things, not human beings, not creation. It's the principalities and power that pervert our relationships. And when they've become subject to the one who subjected them in a cross, not by building one, then God becomes all in all. And when God is all in all, everything that is identifiable is identified with the God who is love. And that is a picture of eschatological consummation. And like a beautiful wedding night romantic experience or whatever your love making that worked out well, you know, like that's, that's what the picture is. And that's not a foreign image. That's literally packed full of the Hebrew Bible, yeah. you know? Um, and so, I mean, and I say it that way just because a lot of times the responses that people give to a process theologian explaining how you're not Christian or whatever is by arguing about what we mean by concrescence or prehension <laughs> or some word that no one should know until they're in a philosophy class, right? Like, no one should. But, like, I don't like – I did not say in the middle of this, like, you want to know why classical Calvinist Christianity is stupid? <laughs> Hypostatic union. Now, that's normal credo Christianity. It's a dumb idea. I know what they were trying to do. They were philosophically incapable of really getting at what they wanted to do, but we could unpack it or whatever. And I'd come up with this weird way of affirming it or dismissing it, depending on how you felt about what I said. But so much of the pushback to process thought is um, uh, set in a context of the terms by a philosopher, not by how that philosophy sings when thematized by the Christian tradition in the story of Jesus. And Christians then hear it, it sounds weird, and they're like, that's bad. But my experience has been, and this is true, so in the past two months I've spoken at a Southern Baptist church, a Unitarian Universalist church, Episcopal Divinity School, and a Mennonite congregation where other Mennonite churches came, um, a Methodist 
uh, uh, whatever their like regional areas are called. Now, n- most of those churches have plenty of reasons they don't get along with each other. I would just said basically the same things I just said to you. And after people are like, obviously that that's really good, you know? And, um, but if I had got up there and said stuff in philosophical language that meant the same thing, they would have been put off. And I really think that so like, there are a lot of people who their experiences with God are so shaped by, the language of scripture or the the language of Christian theology that they will keep the language yeah. and verbiage, even though the ideas at their yeah. heart are not, uh, don't cohere with their lived experience. And so for me, one of the, my, my goals has been, how do you talk that language, but do it in a way that it coheres with your, with a different philosophical commitment? Just like Aquinas will talk Christian in his sermons, but it coheres with Aristotle slightly modified. Or Calvin will exegete a Bible passage that you think is against what he's saying, but he manages to come up with a way that it too recognizes double predestination and complete determinism. And and so the I, I like to me, the contact point for open relational theology is most people's lived experience in relationship to God is much more similar to what we're saying. So let us revise the way we use the language, mythology, poetry of the tradition in such a way it coheres to our lived experience and coheres more strongly to the biblical witness. I think what makes it difficult, though, for people to make that shift is that, you know, if you've if you've had that, per, uh, a, a, say, like an evangelical framework, and that has been the the faith experience and the religious experience that has ordered your life and provided so much meaning, and then all of a sudden, well, I mean, for example, I've got a, I've got a friend who's got a, a recent cancer diagnosis and and a kid on the way, and and those types of things, uh, the the commitments to the the frameworks that worked at one stage, all of a sudden. And, and, and those commitments are sort of what help to bind the whole thing together, become the very thing that starts to, to separate it apart. And then you get the anxiety of feeling like, oh my gosh, all, not only is my world falling apart, apart but now I'm, now I'm doubting. And so like my faith, you get like a whole guilt component. So how does, um, how does what you're mm-hmm. offering or suggesting speak to, to people in a situation like that? Well, I mean, there are two things that popped to mind. One is, um, like, if, if you're talking about a friend dealing with a cancer diagnosis while they just have a new child, in situations of intense um, suffering, anxiety, and stuff, that's really not the time to process new theological ideas. Like, it just isn't. And um, – as a minister, I would say if you're a minister hmm. and you don't talk about how God is present in suffering, then just assume that what people will put in the silence of what you're saying and what the hymns will stick in their mouths is that God is in control of whoever it is that has cancer, whoever it is kid dies in childbirth, whoever it is that loses their job and their life, their family's up told. Like if the if you think God is literally in control and that whatever happens, if you have the right perspective is the good God's decision or permission, then um, as a minister, that's a like that, 
That's what people think unless you tell them otherwise. So outside of those intense moments, you should talk about how God relates to those situations. Hmm. Now, I would also say the second thing is that uh, there's a reason that people want an omnipotent deity to control everything. Because when we suffer, when we have pain, when things are difficult, we want there to be a meaning and a purpose to it. And so often those experiences, there is like uh, right before you called, uh, I was lifting weights and I am not like an athlete. Like I'm like as far from it as possible. Um, In the last four months, I have exercised like three fourths of the days, which is like probably pretty good. Well, no, not just good. Like I'm 36 years old. So this is, that's probably more days than I exercise every year of my life until this year. So like, uh, I'm, I'm there. It's weird, but currently because I did a whole lot of ab work, um, which you can't notice because I still have a tire on my gut, but it's not as big as it was before. So that's good. Um, like <laughs> it hurts, but I know like it's connected to uh, eventually being small enough to buy jeans made by a cool company, <laughs> you know? And so, um, like it is suffering, it is painful or whatever, but it has a purpose. And, but not all sufferings like that. And I can think of as a minister, plenty of situations. And I can think of situations in my own life. And um, I think that when we're uncomfortable and when we don't know what to do with the absurd or shocking experiences in life, our fallback position as Christians is to say, like, well, God's in control or like, you don't know what it meant now, but you'll know later God needed another angel in heaven or some stupid thing that what we're really saying is I'm uncomfortable acknowledging the experience you're going through right now. But I'd hate to tell you that. So I'm just going to say something about God because mm. that lets you know, I hope you get better, but I don't want to listen. Like that in and I completely get it. I'm mm. a minister. I've gone into hospital rooms and if I wasn't getting paid, I would try I would want to close myself off from opening myself to what's going on. Right. So I'm not saying it in a flippant way. I'm just saying that omnipotence is a defense mechanism to really being present to people in suffering. And the consequence is we say that somehow their suffering, their experience of shame and abuse or whatever um, is ultimately a decision or something permitted by God. And that's problematic. That is. And I mean, if we want to go through list of ex- like the, the Holocaust, that would be one where I would find it really hard to think like God was like, I mean, I would do something, but um, it works out good in the end. But like I've I've gone to the hospital at two in the morning by family that's had three miscarriages who then eight and a half months into a pregnancy, they went into labor. I was excited and the baby was born stillborn and they asked me to baptize it. And if you ask me, mm-hmm. is there a good reason that that family has four names that they'll never use for a kid if they have a healthy one, then I'm going to say no. Like, 
It just isn't. And I've, I picked up a, uh, a college student when I was a campus minister who was drugged and sexually assaulted by multiple people. And the trauma he had in that experience was so intense. It, I don't know, like the best way of describing it, but like it, like it shattered his subjectivity. Hmm. So like if you take all the experience of rape and connect it to toxic masculinity's like definition of what it means to be a man and you make him a rural conservative evangelical who being in a situation where you could be taken advantage of in a homosexual way would be problematic. Like all that was bound together. Right. And he has still not recovered. And that was 12 years ago. And, um, and w- one of the times he and I've talked recently, he just said, Oh, I just can't believe that God would let that happen. And now when I first talked to him, he said, why did God want that to happen? Was his language. Mm. Cause his family were very conservative Calvinists, Baptists, like, you know, everything's willed by God. So you just have to learn why God willed it that way. Hmm. Now it's like, why would God let that happen? Obviously God's omnipotent and may God may not have wanted it to, but God didn't stop it. And both of those things are equally problematic to me. Yeah. Like the yeah. number of individuals who have been victims and carry shame in their lives because they've been violated to think that God either let it happen or willed it to happen in some weird, sick way. It's just not, it's just not appropriate. And, um, and so that's why I said it. The first, the first response was you need to talk about this in advance, right? Because I was this campus minister and, um, I knew if you're a campus minister, you have people from all different types of churches, blah, blah, blah. So if you talk about divine power or whatever, you might get in trouble. Because some of them are Calvinists, some of them aren't, some of them blah, blah, blah. None of them are going to be like, well, I'm an open theist. So, you know, I just avoided it. And then there I was trying to decide what to say when he saw me as the figurehead of the one who says, um, oh, what was that worship song we sang he used to say back to me? Uh, the chorus or bridge of it was like, you give and take away, you give and take away. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is one, it's horribly using the context for that Bible verse, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, the whole point was like that you're the, the pious interpretation of your life, regardless of your situation, is that God is the giver and God is the one taking. And here's what God never takes your dignity, your humanity, your value, and your worth. In the church, has mm. so committed to turning God into a picture of Caesar that they will gladly make God culpable to all sorts of things Jesus not only protested, but worked against. And so, like, I just don't, um, like, there was a time I understood the attraction of certain responses. But at this point, recognizing how much the church is failing because it continues to give bad answers to the problem of evil and suffering. I really don't know how we have not recovered 
the response of Jesus, right? When the disciples come to him and go, hey, well, there's this tower and rocks fell off and killed some people. Uh, Whose sin was it? And his response is like, that's a dumb question. Rocks fall. Or when he's going to heal someone, whose sin was it that caused this person to be blind? That it's not someone's sin. But so many times we think we have to put suffering, violation, pain, injustice in a narrative where the victim is ultimately responsible as the sinner. That then, as Christians, we don't have a gospel to sell or tell to those that are violated or those Mm. that carry shame. And the proper response is not get forgiveness for your sins, but what do you do with being a victim and carrying shame? That's not to ask Jesus in your heart for forgiveness response. But we only know what to tell sinners. We don't know what to tell the sinned against. And that's because we need God to have been responsible for the whole damn thing. And that's just bad. It's just bad theology. And Jesus didn't do that. When he saw victims, when he saw those carrying shame, when he saw the exploited, he had solidarity with them. And then the religious people got upset. And they said, why are you forgiving sins on a Sabbath? Or why are you healing on a Sabbath? And he gives smart-ass responses. He's like, okay, do you want me to say take up your mat and walk or your sins are forgiven? Because for him, the issue was that their situation was one of oppression and they needed liberation. Not, let me explain to you the theological situation such that you are culpable and responsible for it so that you can then ask Jesus for forgiveness, right? Like that just wasn't how it Mm, did. And I think American Christianity has specialized in telling people of privilege how as individuals to take responsibility for their individual actions so they can no longer be sinners individually, but hasn't taken account of those who've been sinned against and those who are victims of our structural injustice. And if the gospel doesn't have something to say for the whole thing, then it's only good in a very narrow and limited sense. And it's not as big as a cosmological redemption that New Testament testifies to. Dang, dude. God, <laughs> a place we can go with that. Um, That's good. How, how do you then explain, like, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think about how this works for people in different situations. So you've got, um, if you take away omnipotence and, and, and you live in a situation where, um, well, I, I don't know. Like, I, I could see an argument where process theology is, is a luxury. Uh, because you don't really need a God to come in and rescue you or anybody, right? So, but but if you're in in uh, in, a, in a different situation, if you're oppressed, um, like like for example, it seems like in the global South, you know, process theology isn't exactly spreading like wildfire, um, but it's popular here among you know uh, ex-evangelical millennials and things like that. So why is that? And how, how do you try to get, how do you explain the gospel of process to someone who um, really needs someone to come in and, and, and set things right? Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and here's the thing I would say is, I mean, I think there's two responses. Like one is at the level of, you know, 
global interaction in theology and the church, there has been a lot of fruitful work in the last 15 years between different liberation theologies and process thought. Um, and, you know, that's that's one aspect. Um, you've also seen uh, where different American liberation theologies have connected with process thought. So, like, someone like Monica Coleman is a process theologian and a womanist theologian. And the womanist theological movement, for those who don't know, it, it comes out of um, – uh, black female experience in the United States where black theology had a very patriarchal or hierarchical image of God and such that didn't um, really deal with the issues feminism was ra raising. But then you have feminist theology that was so shaped by the early feminists, um, namely white upper middle class white women, that it didn't recognize the lived experience of uh, black women in America. So the womanist movement kind of has this appreciation and critique of both movements and Monica uh, Coleman, who's was on my dissertation committee um, at Claremont um, is trying to bring those different elements into conjunction. Now she has obviously her academic work, but uh, as a public theologian and as someone that works in the church, if you look at what she's done, Individually, she does things that make sense as a process person. Like she did uh, the Dinah Project, which is working on the testimonies and stories of women who experience domestic abuse and helping them think through them spiritually, theologically, having communities of solidarity and storytelling and healing. And then she's recently written a book called Bipolar Faith, working through her own experience of uh, dealing with disability in the church, mental disabilities, all the all the all the kind of stereotypes and shame connected to it, her own life story, and processing her experiences growing up and things, and um, you know, so you know, in the abstract, a process person pays attention to relationships, context, and all that. Uh, so you can see it work in the more practical level and in her work, and there's uh, you know a number of other examples of people that do that. the The thing I would say. Is it when you are in a congregation or a city or a community, then the contextualization element is is something that happens at the community level. And um, my biggest experiences have been in a extremely affluent white congregation in a very fancy part of the coast of Los Angeles for almost ten years, and then. Um, you know, as a campus minister in the South and a mainline Protestant minister in the South. And I would just say, as a process influence type person, I very rarely talked about process straightforward. I find the scriptures to be plenty open and relational. So if you don't have weird doctrines, it's easier to read them. Um, <laughs> but like if you were trying to teach someone how to experience <laughs> the world as informed uh, in in the way Jesus did, so like Jesus inherited a number of images of God. God is King. God is Lawgiver. God is Parent and such. And Jesus prioritized Abba imagery. And when he taught his disciples to pray, obviously you get Our Father. You get the Abba imagery throughout um, his teaching and such. And, and I think that uh, 
if you were a disciple of Jesus, you experienced the world because of the community he created as one where there was a living and life-giving God invested in your life in this community and that you were called to participate in God's work of salvation and wholeness for the whole world. And it, it seems rather obvious to me that's what he was doing, but the the thing I found in teaching it or ha- inviting people into it is doing what um, I called, but this is borrowed from, uh, I, I was told it by Mark Scandrett, but he got it from Gandhi. He called them experiments in truth, mm. right? Like, and the experiment in truth is, a, a small group decides to postpone deciding if Jesus is the Christ, but literally just do what he said to do and pick a specific practice. You do it in community. And is the world seem more honest and beautiful and exciting to live in based on your life having committed to this practice for a specific period of time. And I facilitated experiments in truth of all sorts. I mean, with teenagers, college students, their parents and their grandparents. And it usually involves a group reading one of the gospels together until they all agree. Some teaching of Jesus is crazy as hell. And I said, good. Now, how would we do it? And they come up with the terms and everyone agrees to it and you do it for a month. And if you do if you actually experiment with being in community where you live the actual practices Jesus called his group into being, I think you end up being a process theologian without any effort, like <laughs> you just do, or at least an open and relational one. And so, like, um, uh, the last group I did was a, a group of adults. And uh, we went on a retreat, read the Sermon on the Mount, did all sorts of reflections around it. And because this is progressive Protestants in California, um, they they latched on to the do not judge verse in the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, because half of them probably didn't, they did, said they didn't know if they believed in God, but, you know, they like Jesus. And I was like, great. Uh, probably the God, the half the people that say they're theists believe in is bad. So I think we're <laughs> starting from a good place. You know, so um, like, we'll, so right. we agree that we're all going to not judge. And if we do, we created a text group and you would just text the name of the person you judged in whatever way you can. Like if, if you think other people know them, just put their initials. Or if you think everyone will know the initials, give them a fake name. But if they don't know them, just give us their first name or whatever. And when you, we all agreed that for that month, when we got the name, we would all pray a prayer that says, God, let's say their name is Andrew, since, you know, you're Andrew. Um, God, Andrew is someone you made know completely and love completely. And I don't see them that way. Give me eyes to see them as your beloved and the courage of faith to treat them as such. Now, um, you're in a text group. There is a certain peer pressure when everyone else has texted their prayer request, basically, <laughs> to do it, right? Like, so let's imagine 15 parents of my youth who, and they were all jealous, basically, that their kids became real Christians during right. confirmation. So <laughs> yeah, they wanted right. adult confirmation. So we're doing this experiment together. And now, like, if you texted, it'd be hard for you not to think about the fact that you just prayed a prayer for your friend who judged someone. 
And so the, the frequency of text goes up over the month. But then someone texts their own name. And at that point, like if I texted Trip, and I knew that on the other end of this text were 15 of my friends who knew me that was mm. going to say, God, you made and know Trip completely. But I haven't treated him that way. You, yeah. you know, you see what I'm saying? Like the when Jesus says, don't judge others, the natural response is to think, that's right, assholes, you just judge yeah. me. Yeah, that makes sense. But at the heart of our brokenness is the fact that most of us don't accept the fact that we're known and loved completely by God. And that the one who made all creation knows us, loves us, and cherishes us deeply. And so what do we do? We judge others, but more deeply than that, we're judging ourselves. Our judging of others or our stupid Twitter outrage, which drives me <laughs> up a wall, like, uh, or whatever we're doing, that ex- where we're exercising right. the demons towards someone and making it public and demonstrating our enlightened perspectives, that is so connected to the our inability to be honest with how much we judge and critique and shame ourselves. And so over the course of this month, we end up, by the end, the last week, three-fourths of the text messages are names of people in the group texted by themselves. Hmm. And if you meet weekly with a group that decided to have an experiment in truth, and that meant you knew hmm. this group has promised to play for the pray for the person you're judging, because we know God sees them differently than we do. And then you realize that we don't even see ourselves the way God sees us. And these friends are praying that you learn to see yourself as God's beloved, because the most true thing about you is that God has said it and you can't argue with the creator. If you're in that community, it changes the way you live. It changes the way you relate to others. And it actually makes you think that in each moment, what does faithfulness look like? It means responding to the God of love who is invested in relating to all those you're connected with, which is like what process theology is. That's like our main job. And that that's not tertiary to what God's up to. That's at the heart of it. So um, and there are other things like we did. I've had groups that are like, oh, I've you know, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, when you pray, when you give, and when you fast. And the they'd never fasted before. And then we fasted from weird, weird stuff. Like I had a group of uh, college students give up screens for Lent. Oh, boy. And so in lieu of screens, which like literally they all put all their phones at the church for Lent, which meant I had to, which was painful because nice. how can you watch a Laker game without tweeting? Is that reasonable? No, it's not. Um, I use my computer. But, you know... <laughs> The the uh, the giving up giving up screens and and then so what were you doing with what you subtracted in a fast handwriting letters now I'll just tell you um, I don't know what the second coming looks like but I doubt a grandparent will think it's significantly less amazing than getting a series of letters asking to hear stories from the grandkid that's in college and I got calls from people I never met. Who said, Oh, my granddaughter is, a, you know, she's at UCLA. She's going to your church. And she wrote me a letter. We've written letters back and forth all of Lent. And 
like, I'm not even religious, but she said that she wanted to know my story, <laughs> you know? And so like, I, I, I just say that because on my podcast, it's always nerdy all the time, but at the heart of like why I'm a process person is because it, it says the very place God has promised to show up is in relationships. And, um, and in the New Testament, there are specific places God says God will always be. At the table, like when we celebrate God's presence in the person of Jesus, uh, in confession, when we gather in groups of two or three, when we confess our sins to each other, and in the least of these, like when we put our lives, time, and energy and resources on the line for those that are exploited in our context, God promises to be there. And, and my thing is, I think if we're in a community of faith, where those are our practices, then our theology gets better over time. Um, like it's hard to pray for your enemy for a month and then think God sent your Buddhist neighbor to mm -hmm. hell. It just is like, like you're like, uh, I, I mean, I, and you know, I, I had a group that prayed for Osama bin Laden for, uh, a year because it was a year long, um, confirmation group and by the end of it no one thought anything about it but for months it was uncomfortable and we were you know the the confirmation group was a bunch of juniors and seniors in high school at a disciples of christ church in winston-salem north carolina are doing confirmation sunday and a kid dressed like uh kid he's 17 um i'm old uh it, it, he he's dressed like mr rogers comes out with a cardboard cutout of Osama bin Laden and sets it behind the communion table and serves it. Wow. Now, well, like, I mean, if you've read the New Testament, you've probably noticed that the guy that betrays Jesus to his death denies him multiple times, and all of those that abandon him are there. So it shouldn't be surprising to you that the God, that the one who said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and turn the other cheek, might possibly serve communion to your very clear enemy, but it was not immediately obvious to this congregation. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> did, you, did you get some angry emails? Well, well, see, the, it was kind of, but like the the shocking part was we had dealt with that early on in the process of someone choosing to pray for our enemies as an experiment in truth. And one of the guys is like, I ain't praying for no goddamn Osama bin Laden, you know, and uh, and that exact voice. Yeah, that's that's uh, pretty accurate. Um, I mean, this is this is uh, not this is not Los Angeles. This is rural North Carolina. Yeah, man. And uh, and he he's also a guy that had uh, dip in his boots <laughs> at church, no. like, so he would pull it out, you know. And uh, he he went on to be a marine, so I have no idea if he was involved in the future assassination of Osama bin Laden, but uh, he wouldn't tell me if he was. But the but the group was like, everyone's uncomfortable with the fact that apparently we're supposed to pray for him. And I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. That's just what Jesus said. I, I'm as uncomfortable as you. And he's like, well, anybody wants to pray for him. But if he comes to church, before he gets out of the parking lot, I'm going to put one between his head. And no. I was like, you know, and I'm like, I guess. like, I but, guess. At least, but I said, you should at least offer him communion first, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And... And so, like, it, so the reference for our conversation was connected to me trying to 
deal with that awkward moment. And so we're like, if you love your neighbor and you love your enemies, like obviously Mr. Rogers and Osama should host the table. Um, and, and, uh, you know, when one of the, one of the confermans who's a senior and related to all the older gentlemen in dress blues at the church were surrounded. I come up thinking, Oh, I'm going to have to run interference because the other minister, because this is my first like full-time ministry job. He looked at me during this, like what the <laughs> hell are you doing? Right. And, and after he go, he comes up to me before I come back out, you know, after I got my robe off, he's like trip, uh, two things. One, that worship service is way too Christian for a Christian church. <laughs> Two, um, you'll probably get in trouble. I'll get your back. Uh, please don't do that again without talking to me. And um, which which was nice. I feel like thinking later, what if my intern or someone had done something like that? I would have said, "Really, you didn't think about telling me you were going to have a." Six and a half foot cutout of Osama bin Laden at the union table, and uh, so, um, and so I come over there to one of the girls that is cornered by her grandparents and uncles and everybody in their dress blues because of her confirmation Sunday, and she goes, "No, no, no, I'm not." She says, "I'm not disagreeing with you." Yeah, yeah, I think we should totally shoot him in the parking lot. I'm just telling you that Jesus will be disappointed. <laughs> if we didn't give him an opportunity to meet him at the table because he served it to the guys about to turn him in and get him killed. The one's going to deny him. And she gives this whole thing. And uh, now I don't even know if he'd want us to shoot him in the parking lot, but we'd at least have to serve him at the table first. Cause if everyone's not welcome at it, we aren't cause we're sinners. And I was like, never mind, I'm walking away. Dang. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and so I, and I just say that cause there's nothing natural about thinking that way. But I think it is natural if you just do what Jesus said, pray for yeah, your enemies. Yeah, yeah. And and when you do that and you think of like how many times in the youth group we argued like, well, what about the Native Americans who hadn't had a missionary meet? Do they go right. to hell? Or like, <laughs> you know, well, the Jewish people who rejected Jesus because of the Holocaust and you're like, yeah, it, it honestly, we were anti-Semitic before the Second World War, but go ahead, you know, and it just changes things. And in, and so for me, if you believe God is living, relational, open, and invested in each moment, your priority as a minister and as a person of faith for your own formation is to have practices where you're learning to experience the world shaped by the practices Jesus invited his disciples into. Be in yeah. a community that's shaped by the practices Jesus invited his disciples into. Then maybe we start to see God as Abba and experience that. And not God as king and not God as judge. Because when Abba is king, then we are children of the Most High. And when Abba is judge, we're not going into a courtroom to get condemned for murder for all eternity, we're showing up and realizing that the one who made all creation is adopting us into their family. And that's good news. Yeah, But I don't think we start to experience the world in a way that coheres with the one Jesus invited his disciples into until we actually have communities that practice his teachings. Uh, right. Yeah. 
Gosh, that's good. I, I so appreciate you diving into uh, just right into the application because so much of what we try to focus on in the podcast is also certainly the nerdy theological stuff, but yeah. also the boots on the ground here and now flesh and bone. Like th- this is where this stuff becomes real and the rubber and the rubber meets the road. So that's really helpful. And, and I would just say like right now, the like I'm trying to pray for Donald Trump. And people that still haven't recognized how vile a human being he is. Like, like I, it's not like I don't want to tweet all the things my friends tweet. I just don't tweet it because I don't think it will help. And um, I, it's not because, like, like I'm a significantly different person. <laughs> it's just right. I know that the that if Jesus is revelatory of who God is and how God's kingdom comes in the world, then anxiety, fear, inflammatory anger beyond control is not the means by which it comes. Right. And it doesn't mean not taking a stand, not being clear and defining yourself and your convictions. It just means that, um, a lot of what people pass off as like righteous anger and in, indignance is um, is really a means by which they justify not understanding the situation of the one they're judging and dismissing and not right. hearing their story. And this is really hard. Like I'm literally talking about my in-laws who now I live in the same state as them and uh, which I hope they don't listen to your podcast, but like <laughs> they're Patreon members, they're Patreon members. They were like, um, Stephen, Andrew, could you have trip on? We're praying for his. Yeah, son. exactly. For salvation. Yeah. But I mean, I just say it that way. Like, like I facilitated groups where people that didn't know if God existed became more beautiful humans than I've managed in my life. So that's why I'm more convinced in communities of practice than, um, you know, seminary classrooms, but, Oh, I love classrooms. Like, right. Yeah. Like I, and I think it's important and I think it's a skill. It's an art to think through in the most nerdy ways. But, um, some of the best human beings I've ever met in the world are dumb. Like they're just, like they believe weird things that I'm like, do you, did you not take a science class? And they're like, why would I take that? Cause I read the Bible and I'm like, exactly. <laughs> and I, and I don't even know what to do with it, but like my grandmother, one of the sweetest kindest per- people backwards as can be on many theological issues was also uh, disturbed by when she discovered the pay difference between domestic workers in the nursing home she ran that were people of color and ones that were white. And she, she just thought she's a Christian. So obviously this is unjust. And so she signed all the white people up in the union to unionize because obviously, no, I'm just saying it's not that obvious. (laughs) It's just, that's right. It made sense to her. And you, she's scary if you are against her. So she, all these people said yes. And, but if you, you know, if she wrote what she thought theologically on a piece of paper, it might cause indigestion. And uh, I'm sure in heaven she's praying for my salvation. But, uh, well, hopefully, now that she knows JC and I roll deep, 
The anxiety's probably gone. Yeah, the anxiety's gone. You've you have the seal of approval. No, yeah, I was a theater major, and so when I started dating my to be wife, she told her she's like, I mean, he's dated a lot of girls for a few weeks, but I always thought he was gay. <laughs> and, and and so I think after she knew I was straight, like always rest assured, I leveled up. You yeah, know? exactly, exactly. Man, Trip, this is awesome. I we could frankly continue like for the next couple of hours, and uh, I, I want to be sensitive. Not all of our listeners have the same appetite for uh, like the two hour episodes. <laughs> but <laughs> I thank you so much for giving us like just frankly your. I don't want to say hot take because this is obviously very thought out, but also your, your kind of thoughtful commentary on both the process stuff, and I think we even cover some things well, more broadly yeah. too. What I, what I would ask kind of in, in conclusion, number one, we're, we're going to have some other guests on, um, around open and relational theology. And so I think listeners will have other sort of perspectives. Um, what, what else would you point folks to particularly around this conversation for those that, folks that want to go deeper, either particular thinkers, authors, theologians, just other resources. Um, and then secondly, would love for you to put out a plug or two, uh, shamelessly with, you know, around what you're doing, including road to Edmund, which I'd like you to mention if that works. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I would say the, you know, when it goes to open and relational theologies, um, one, just go to open relational theology.com and just join the reading group because Tom Ord and I are doing it together and we're, reading six different thinkers and they vary from like Clark Pinnock, who's a fundamentalist Southern Baptist open theist to Keith Ward to Marjorie Suhaki, who's a liberal Methodist Presbyterian or Methodist process thinker to Karen Baker Fletcher, who's an AME womanist uh, theologian to like Sir John Polkinghorne because like he has (laughs) Sir in front of his name for a reason. Yeah. And so, um, that would be a cool resource. Um, if you were like the book, I think of obviously other than my own book called the homebrew Christianity guide to Jesus, Lord lunatic liar, or just freaking awesome. Um, other than that, the Jesus Abba by John Cobb is a really good book to read or, um, uh, Rabbi Brad Artson wrote, an introduction to process theology. It's from a Jewish perspective, yeah. but you know, uh, my favorite, you know, my savior is a Jew. So, uh, you know, they're, <laughs> they're good. And, but if you just type in, uh, if you just Google Brad Artson or Rabbi Brad Artson on Amazon, there are two books that he wrote. One's on like science and religion and the other's on like an introduction to process called like, I can't remember the name of it, but those would be the ones I'd, like immediately point to other than, you know, I'm sure because y'all had Tom Ward on, right? Yeah. Tom we Ward? had Rabbi, Rabbi Arson as well. Yeah. Oh, well then they're both wonderful. Then if you are a post-structuralist or like super postmodern nerdy, I would read on the mystery by Catherine Keller. And if you're into science and stuff, there's a brand new book by John hot H a U G H T called the new cosmic story, which is super amazing. Um, and uh, there's another book I just finished reading that by Thomas Hosinski. Uh, or it's like I have no idea what the name of it is. It's green. It's green. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, 
it, if it's brand new, it's in a book series that Ilya Dilio is the editor of, and it's like something like God, evolution, science, and creativity, or some list of things. But it's really cool. Um, it's super easy to read. Like it goes from like the person of Jesus into science into theology and religion. Um, okay, we'll yeah. uh, we'll, we'll dig it up. Good. We'll dig it up and well. So have y'all seen the movie? Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah, we both we both watched it, man. You got you got the acting gift, man. Obviously, the writing is great too. It's an awesome story. For those who don't know, Trip, I guess technically directed and wrote and acted it. No, no, I I wrote and acted. Dave Trotter and I, who wrote most of the story, he and I wrote most of the story together, and uh, he directed and produced it, and uh, so we wrote it together, and then I acted yeah. in it, and he decided, like, what of all my rantings to edit into the film. Right. <laughs> it was great. No, it's it's awesome. Wait, where can folks find that today? Um. Well, if they go to the roaddeadman.com, they'll find it. If they go quickly to jesusloversourmovie.com, you can watch it through the end of the month um, and, you know, just like stream it and it will, and you can donate whatever you want. You can watch it and then decide if it's too heretical or not. Right. But uh, what, what'd you, how would y'all describe it to your friends? Like, I know, I bet y'all y'all come from Church of Christ, so there are probably some friends you don't want to watch it, some that you're like, <laughs> I don't want to be responsible for your feelings about it, and others you're like, you really should watch this movie. Yeah. Um, like, how would y'all pitch it? Yeah. Steven, you want to go first? or So you're asking, what's my pitch? Yeah, like, it, it, like I obviously can tell people it's the greatest movie of all time. Um, like in the genre of buddy road trip comedies with progressive spiritual themes, it's obviously the best movie ever <laughs> and uh, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. I, so, sorry, Steve, I was gonna cut you off. You want to go first? Or, I mean, go ahead, yeah. go ahead, go ahead. Well, I would just say, you know, in terms of thematic or in terms of kind of plot, it, you know, it's a story of two, you know, f- kind of accidental, a friendship, an accidental friendship um, w- with you and, uh, this other gentleman, uh, who affected Theo, right. Is his name. I think it was Larry and Cleo Cleo. Yeah. That's what it was. Cleo. Yeah. So I promise I actually watched it. It's been a while. Um, you know, so, so Larry and Cleo, you know, kind of accidentally become friends after Cleo's experiencing sort of a, call it disruption as an employed member of a church given based on some advice he gave someone in his youth group that was, frankly frowned upon by leadership. He's asked to take a bit of a sabbatical and he's kind of processing his own internal, you know, his internal journey, thoughts about God, the church, what he's supposed to do, his vocation. And as he meets Larry, who's you and is hilarious and any, any number of things, including really deep, it has a story of his own. They you frankly become become friends unexpectedly and process a lot of this stuff through this spontaneous road trip that ends up being not too spontaneous once you learn more about what it is Larry's up to. But I, I mean, I totally pitch it as one, just super watchable and and enjoyable. Like it's a, like it's just funny and genuinely I like found myself like actually laughing a lot, yeah. which is really cool. And but also exploring themes that are like really real to many of us. Like, okay, I'm moving into this sort of uncharted territory with someone I'm pastoring or something I'm reading 
um, something that's going to disrupt my framework um, or my denominations framework. And what do I do with it? And can I actually build, you know, can I actually live in community with people that are undergoing that kind of thing? And what, what are the alternatives? Um, so hopefully that's a little bit, I enjoyed it. I'd recommend it. I thought it was great. Yeah. Yeah, And, and I think for, for me, like, uh, the movie came out of how many people listen to the podcast that are ministers and get in that situation where being faithful to the God you thought you've, that you'd known your entire life, um, put you in conflict with the congregations and traditions that called you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's so high. Right. And totally. Uh, and I think there's a lot of in each denomination and each church is at a different place in that process. But um, our goal in the film was both to raise all those questions. So if you watched it, you had to talk about it like you couldn't say they didn't exist, but also do it in a way that the framework of how you would assess Larry and Cleo at the beginning of the film didn't work at the end. So that right. you, as you came to know more about both of their stories, you realized, oh, I guess my initial judgment of someone when I just based it on my theology and not their actual experience and story was wrong. Yeah. And so like, when you think of, of that movie. whole last scene um, where you find out Larry's story and stuff, yeah. the number of people who I've watched it, you know, in a theater with conservative evangelicals that judged him the whole movie are then like crying, going like, Oh my God. Like if that had happened to me, I may have been the same person. Yeah. You know, and how many progressive people are upset when Cleo just doesn't end up agreeing with them completely. And who is it in the entire thing that facilitates the friendship and it has the patience to bring the redemption to both of them. It's Cleo. Like right. the best evangelist you've ever had is the conservative evangelical youth minister who doesn't know if he counts anymore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and so when uh, they end up in Edmond, it's a playoff the road to Emmaus story in um, the end of the Gospel of Luke, where two guys are going to Emmaus. Jesus is with them, and they don't know who it is until he serves them communion, and then he disappears. And the only guy named in the story is Cleopas. So the whole idea of the film was, you know, they end up going to Edmond. And Cleo and Larry are in White Lightning, who is obviously the Holy Spirit, the van. Because everyone who's been a youth minister knows only good things happen in church vans. That's right. Oh, yeah. and, That's and, right. and certain rule violations. But <laughs> it depends on, you know, how you organize your seating in the in the youth van. But the um yeah, so like my goal or Dave and I's goal was to do a kind of retelling of the Emmaus story where the questions and doubts and stuff like the questions around suffering, sexuality, faith and stuff the people are having today are the situation where Christ shows up in the midst of it. And then in his disappearance, you have these friends that are formed reconciled and they process their grief and stuff with God. But in the middle of it is lots of thoroughly inappropriate jokes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, it, it was that was uh, it was interesting how you'd have this, you'd have Cleo essentially hearing, I mean, the, hearing the words of Jesus through Larry, who in Cleo's framework is just grossly inappropriate and totally off the map. But it's, 
I, I'm thinking of the of the of the, uh, of the of the bathing scene in particular, where the dove lands on his shoulder, and <laughs> there's there's some there's some good stuff in there. Oh yeah, yeah, that okay. So that water. So in the movie, if you there's like a couple flashbacks where like L- Larry is doing something that's clearly biblical, but for not intentional or biblical reasons, and Cleo's like God, if you're here you know, or whatever. And there's a scene where I'm bathing in the Colorado river. The water is 38 degrees. No. And we filmed that scene for, (laughs) Oh, some ungodly amount of time. Like we had to take a break because that bird would not land on my head. And I did the, like, you know, fall forward in a, in a, uh, spot that was too shallow for my whole body to go under like just like straight up well flop thing <laughs> probably 20 25 times and every time i would lose my breath and come up and go like <gasps> and and hope that bird landed on my head and it was the bird's name was chachi but it was like every time i see that scene if someone doesn't appreciate it i just want to kick them because i just want to describe how painful the pain. it was. Now you know yeah. what these people go through, man. No, yeah, that I know. was awesome. I loved it. I know. I just feel like I have some solidarity, you know, with like me and Will Smith. We have things in common. Like <laughs> we do things for art. There you go. That's awesome. We'll put a link to That's it. That's awesome. Uh, well, yeah. We'll put a link to it for sure. Yeah, we definitely will. Trip, thanks, man. Hey, I, I'm going to try to come see you on uh, on Monday. It'd be great to shake your shake your hand in real life. That. That will be excellent. I will, uh, you know, pretend I know you. Yeah, exactly. Well, we don't have the video here, so you really won't know. I can come, you know, in disguise or whatever. I'll try to, like, identify you by their voice, you know. No, yeah, exactly. Marco Polo. Um, No, but seriously, man. (laughs) The youth minister games. Appreciate it, man. Thank you again for for the time. And uh, for those listening, definitely stick around for our other guests on the same subject and uh, looking forward to continuing down the uh, open and relational rabbit trail. Steven, anything else you want to hit no. before we close? I think that's it, man. Thanks trip. We appreciate it. All yeah. righty. Well, you know, congratulations on persevering through this entire I know. <laughs> conversation. This is, this is a marathon. Man. <laughs> <laughs>